0: If you look at your bulletin Lane, we're talking about starting on square one. Square one is truth. Truth. You know, starting points are very, very, very important. In fact, they are so important that they determine where one ends up. If one begins with truth and operates on that premise, you can go on to discover, to analyze, and to arrive at more truth. But if one begins with error, and proceeds on a discovery for the truth, based on that error starting point, you will never find it because the basic assumption on which all the investigation is founded is false we talk about we're going to talk a little bit about how our false assumptions color the truth suppose i was convinced in my mind that the city of flint was out that front door we don't use that door much but for my illustrations, I'm going to use it this morning, (laughs) was out that front door and to the right or east. So I go out, I get in my car, I exit the church parking lot on the east drive, I turn right on Dryden Road and I drive 50 miles because I'm heading to Flint. You know where I'm going to end up? I'm going to end up in Port Urine, but I'm not going to end up in Flint. If I drove 300 miles, I would end up in Canada, but it still would not be Flint. If I kept driving east, I would end up in New York State, but not in Flint. Maybe my wife, I can assure you she would, (laughs) she would say to me, I think you're going in the wrong direction. But men can't be told where to drive when they're driving. If I believed with all my mind that Flint lay to the east of the church, I would keep driving. And eventually I would have to confess to my wife that I was lost. Only now I'm in the state of Maine, I'm at the Atlantic Ocean, and I can't drive any further. You say, what's your point? The point is, I cannot correct my thinking without giving up my assumptions, my presuppositions. Flint is east of the church. See, I've started out wrong. That's my assumption. And if I'm not willing to give that up, I'm going to keep driving because in my mind, that's the way to get to Flint. But now I'm in Maine, and although I am willing to admit that I am lost and that I cannot find Flint, since I do not know where Flint is, that's supposed to be my end destination, even if I turned around and decided, okay, I'm going to drive west of Maine, there's no assurance that I would arrive in Flint. There's a lot of cities west of Maine. I may end up in Manitoba, Canada. The only way for me to arrive in Flint when I leave the church parking lot is to know where Flint is. If I have that truth, I can find my way to Flint if I'm south of Metamora, if I'm north of Lapeer, or clear out east in the state of Maine. I begin with knowledge, truth, not just what I think is the truth, And I proceed from the truth to arrive at more truth. We must begin with truth if that is our end destination. Now how does a person begin with truth? We all have to start somewhere. Where do we start? In our day, when people think of truth as being relative and they talk about my truth, and your truth we know that there are numerous starting points but guess what they cannot all be correct and as demonstrated if we do not begin right we will not end right we have a number of people that think they have this figured out the intellectual is going to say Well, reason rules. You got to use your brain. That's the starting point. How stupid of you, Fred, to drive to Maine looking for Flint. Now, he says that to me because he knows where Flint is. He has knowledge to which I am not privy. But the day will come... For the intellectual, when he will also run up against something that he does not know, and his reasoning ability will not enable him to arrive at the truth, even more than my ignorance helped me arrive in Flint. He will have to give up some assumptions that he thought were true, and he will also reach a dilemma one day which gives no answer And he will have to choke it out if necessary. I don't know. The intellectual with his reason will come up against a wall. that he cannot penetrate with his brain power. And he will have to say, I don't know. The experientialist comes along and says, well, I've got the answer. You guys in your brain, your brain trust. The experientialist says, experience rules. Fred, you've driven to Flint a thousand times. Experience should have taught you that Flint is west of the church, not east. You should have relied on your past history. Your experience. Okay. Okay. But the day will come... When I will be confronted with something I have not experienced before, how will I process the data and arrive at the truth? My experience is limited. Now, I've experienced more at 70 than a person at 30. Uh, But then again, maybe not. The person at age 30 may have... The world, while I've lived all my life in but four states. But even so, the person who has had multiple experiences has not had them all. He hasn't died yet, to name one. And those who have experienced death are no help to him in learning about death, because for him, His own experience is his starting point for truth. If he hasn't experienced it personally, you're not interested. Brethren, there are many, many bogus starting points. I've left a little bracket there in your bulletin. Maybe you want to fill in some of this. The hedonist says pleasure rules. If it's pleasurable, go ahead and do it. Just live for pleasure. Don't worry about the morality of things. The relativist says we get to make our own rules because there are no absolutes. So just make it up as you go. And you're just accountable to your own rules. The postmodern says there are no rules. Live any way you want. And the pragmatist says it's a rule only if it works. I'm looking for what works. Workability. That's my one rule in life. Does it work? And then you will have people that come along and they say, you're all wrong with all these starting points. Just trust the experts. You don't know anything. Trust the experts. You see, among all these systems of thought, there is the constant appeal to the experts. So-and-so has his doctor's degree. The latest scientific findings say, da-da-da-da-da-da, Mr. Quasimodo is a prophet and he receives revelations. The Constitution of the United States guarantees our rights as citizens. Oh, really? People appeal to newspaper journalists, to college professors to judges' rulings, to opinions of Hollywood stars, to Dr. Phil, to Oprah, to Dr. Oz, and on and on it goes. The problem in all of this is that for every group of experts that claim to know something, there's another group of experts standing ready in the wings to dispute their findings. Have you noticed that? The Bible puts it this way. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Proverbs 18, verse 17. Seems right, seems reasonable. Then someone goes, ah, what about... Hmm? Now, this is because all of the experts, I put them in quotes, All of the experts are fallible. They make mistakes. They don't know everything. They can't give an answer for every contingency. And in the end, they may have to make a calculated, oh, horrors, guess. And they may guess wrong. As surely as they may guess right. All these medical ads that are on television. Have you ever listened to them all the way through? They have to do all this disclosure stuff now. Gonna go blind, deaf, have a heart attack, may cause death, but it'll help your arthritis. (laughs) You know. The bottom line in all of this is that every, listen to me, every man-made or human starting point to discover truth is flawed because it is hampered by finite, that is, limited knowledge, and it is colored by the bias of sin which shapes all of the information and distorts it to suit man's godless purposes." Now, I have an illustration for you this morning. There's a bottle of water. Hope it stays there. And that stands for pure truth. Here's us. I took the label off so I won't get sued. And you can see the difference. We are colored. We are colored. This bottle of colored whatever is man with his prejudices, his preconceived notions, his assumptions on right, wrong, good, bad. And it's colored because it means he's not neutral. You and I, this is you and I, no one is neutral. We're not purely objective. We have an opinion through which we run all data to arrive at another opinion. So along comes something which is really and truly true. That's the clear water here. But when our subjective biases and presuppositions enter into clear truth, truth does not change us. We change the truth. And it becomes watered down and assumes the color or the spin on which we, which we fabricate. Now someone will look at that and they will say, well, at least error was diluted by the truth. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Or there's another way to look at it, and that is to think of truth being polluted. Guess what position the Bible takes? Let me read it for you. Paul writes, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, come back to your senses as you ought, stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 and verse 34. Or another text from Corinthians. The Corinthian church was boasting about the fact that they were being so tolerant of a man living in immorality. And so Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? get rid of the old yeast, the sinful thoughts and assumptions, That you may be a new batch without yeast, that's the clear water, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Clear water. Now brethren, this happens so automatically, so effortlessly, that we do not even realize what has happened. We assume we are right. We believe in ourselves. We do not question the fact that we may be deceiving ourselves with our own preconceived opinions. We don't see ourselves as already colored while we're trying to discover truth. You see it there in your bulletin: the bias of sin distorts and suppresses truth. You'll say, "Well, then we are, we are all in a very bad way." I mean, if none of us are neutral with regard to truth, if We all have assumptions, opinions, experiences which color the truth. Are we not doomed to distortion and ignorance and darkness and stupidity and despair? And I I would have to agree that if that were the end product, that would be the end conclusion. Every human philosophy ends this way. Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. They color it by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans 1, verse 18 and following. What is he saying? He's saying mankind, devoid of God, is doomed to stumble, bumble its way through life, claiming to know when it doesn't know anything. Following the way of the lie instead of the way of truth. Our starting point determines our ending point. If we begin with truth, we will find truth. If we begin with error, everything we think is the truth will be distorted by that error. And we will all end up in darkness. This was Jesus' point in the account he told of the two builders. One built upon sand, the other built upon rock. And when the superstructure of both places were finished, it looked like both men had a true house. Look that way. The final end of their effort, Right? But the trial of the flood and the winds and the waves prove that the builder on sand didn't have a house after all. His starting point was sand, his ending point was a pile of twisted tubefores. Think of Hurricane Sandy the other year and how it hit the Jersey Shore and all those beautiful resort homes. Picked right up, lifted off their foundation. Built on sand, wind and waves came in, just rubble. The builder on sand, his starting point was an unsure foundation. He didn't begin with solid truth about home construction, and so he ended up with rubble and so it is in the spiritual realm as well and in the battle for the minds of men we must begin right to end right and that's the second point in your outline that we need to start out yes but also stick with god how do we start out on the right foot well when it comes to knowledge and truth all of the possible starting points all of them All that are available to us can be reduced to but two. You say, well, you listed a lot of starting points this morning. Yeah, but they can all be reduced to two. Here they are. Either we we begin with fallible man's wisdom, reason, experience, and study, or we begin with the all-knowing, infinitely wise God and Creator. The benefit to us in starting with God, as revealed in His Word, the Bible, is that God stands outside of our sinful universe and experience, outside of ourselves with all of our biases, and He speaks objectively about life and all that there is. What we are looking for is an authority, a touchstone, a foundation upon which to rest our worldview, our philosophy of life that cannot be refuted, which does not look to fallible fallen men to validate. We're looking for an infallible, irrefutable, ultimate standard of truth. Now a standard is an agreed upon measure of the truth. I have a wristwatch on this morning runs by a battery. But when the battery starts to die, the wristwatch starts to lose time. You have an electric clock in your kitchen. If you lose the electricity, as we sometimes do in Lapeer, you have to go through the house and change all the clocks. But there's a standard. It's the atomic clock out in Colorado somewhere. Uses an oscillating mass, not a spring, not a vibrating crystal, but the nucleus of an atom. Adam, atom? A T O M. Something God has created and which is ever constant. And that's what the world's clocks are set on. In the air of measurement, we have a yardstick. What's that? A yardstick? Oh, that's three feet. Yeah, but it's a cheap wooden thing that companies hand out at parades and store openings, but no master carpenter would use a yardstick to measure three feet. It's not a good enough standard. He's going to use a tape roll or a laser roll. A shop worker is going to use a digital readout to four decimal points for precise cuts. But, but even these standards have their limitations because they are devised by fallible men. We live with them and we function by them because for most of us, we're not looking for perfection. We're just looking for functionality. But guess what? The standard God holds out to us is also demanded of us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. And if we wonder what being perfect means in reference to God, Peter gives us the answer. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. So holiness is not something that is native to human nature. Sinfulness is what is native to human nature. And by that sin, as we have seen, we distort everything that comes our way. We corrupt it by our sin. We make it unholy. So the standard of truth cannot be our thinking, or even that of the experts if we are to arrive at the perfection that God requires. Providentially, we have a perfect starting point. We have a flawless, inerrant, 100%, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God, standard by which we can swear. This starting point is not open to revision by men, refutation as being false or dismissed as being invalid. It is the measuring rod to end all measuring rods. It is the standard to which all other sources of information are judged and found to be either false or true. This starting point that fastens us on the solid rock of truth from which we can go on to discover more truth is the word of God. The Bible. The psalmist put it this way. The law of the Lord is perfect. Wow. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Giving light to the eyes. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 8. Notice those words. Perfect, right, radiant. Everything man's hoping for in his quest for truth. In the account of the two builders, Jesus put it this way. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Our starting point, our bedrock in formulating our worldview and in teaching others the gospel directives of it is the word of God, including the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an infallible perfect truth on which to start and it sets the pace for where we will end up if we keep measuring our footsteps and returning again and again to the standard. The world does not have this. Now, it does not have this, not because it isn't available to the world, but because of what Paul told the Thessalonians about those who perish in their sin. He wrote, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10. Jesus put it this way. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So you got Paul saying, they refuse to love the truth. And you got Jesus saying, they love the darkness instead of light. That's why they can't find the truth. This is the effect of the fall. The fall into sin. Prior to sin, Adam and Eve gladly acknowledged God as their reference point for what was true. It was God who determined for them what was right, what was wrong, and they concurred. In the fall, Adam chose to no longer stand on the solid foundation of God's word, but decided instead to trust his own opinion as the starting point for truth. And from that point on man has been hostile towards the word of God. And he will do everything to suppress the truth by wickedness. Men do not care what God thinks. They only care what they think. They only care what they want. They only care with, about their ideals and their goals. And how to accomplish those things. Now in our witness... In our proclamation of the gospel, Christians will never win the war against the prideful, man-centered worldviews until we challenge the starting point of the critics and force them to live consistently with the consequences of their erroneous thinking. This cannot be done if the Bible is never brought into the dialogue. If you simply tell people what you have experienced in Jesus, wonderful as that may be, they will have their own experience which refutes yours. You know, I was lost and I was going down the road of drugs and immorality and I was having trouble with the law I was arrested a few times and so on and so forth. But then Jesus came into my life. And turned everything around. Won't you have Jesus? Don't you want Jesus? And they'll come back with their own experience. My mother was a crackhead, and I've had drugs in my body ever since I being a teenager, and I'm doing just fine. I'm the vice president of a corporation. Da 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 da. If you try to use logic and reason to argue the validity of the gospel, they will have their own reasons for rejecting it. Now, your opinions may be better than most because they are undergirded with biblical principles, but your audience will not know that. They just hear an opinion, which to their way of thinking is not any more compelling than their own opinion. What they cannot refute, though they may squirm to do so, is the authority of the word of God. The God who says, my word goes out and it will not return to me empty-handed. It will not return to me void, having done nothing. Brethren, if you do not use the Bible, you have abandoned the only solid foundation upon which Any lasting superstructure can be built. Don't get in this tit for tat, well I'll share my opinion and you share your opinion, or let me tell you what I know and they'll say, well let me tell you what I know. I mean that's an endless loop-de-loop. You need to say, but God's word says, boom, and lay it on. When Martin Luther was called on the carpet and was threatened by execution if he did not recant his opposition to Tetzel's sale of indulgences, he did not appeal. He did not appeal his position to church tradition. He did not appeal to the expert testimony of church theologians. He did not appeal to the latest scientific findings. He did not appeal to the established creeds of the church, no, to none of these things. Instead, he appealed to the word of God saying, here I stand, I can do no other. And guess what? They didn't know what to do with them. And in this wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we're going to sing later. He speaks of the devil and the devil's lies. And he says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit, the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Luther was not about to leave the perfect starting point of God's word to defend himself. And his enemies could not refute him. And that brings us then to the corrective word to young Timothy and to us that we have in our text. Verse 14 and following, he says to Timothy, Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of how from infancy you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Elsewhere, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we learn that Timothy is one of the few Gentiles in Scripture who had a godly mother and a grandmother who brought him up in the things of God. Two generations of Christian heritage and teaching And Paul challenges Timothy not to forsake his starting point. What is that? From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. A biblical worldview was inculcated in him by his family and later by Paul. Verse 14 and following. Now this in itself is no reason to make the Bible one starting point. I mean, maybe his family were a bunch of religious fanatics. Perhaps Paul was some wacko cult leader using the Bible to his own ends. That's not the reason why. No, the reason the scripture is not something Timothy should abandon is that all scripture is God-breathed. Forgetting the human agents that God employed to write his words down, Paul goes directly to the source of the words and of the thoughts, which is God. He is saying, give up the scriptures, Timothy, and you cut yourself off from the wisdom of God. From the ultimate foundation of truth, the starting point that leads to all truth. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I give you this charge. Preach the word with great patience and careful instruction. He's saying, far from abandoning the word, Timothy, you proclaim it. Why? Because time is running out, that's why. The day is coming when people will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to mess. Chapter 4, verse 4. You know, the charge is often leveled about the Bible, that it is a book of myths and fables. But Paul tells Timothy, "Ah, uh-uh, not so. Not so. The Bible is God-breathed. Words that came from the God who cannot lie and the God who only speaks the truth. Thus His word is truth. And it is when men turn away from the scriptures that they turn aside from truth to myths and fables. That's where the myths and fables come from. So my charge to you today is let us be convinced today that where we start in our worldview determines where we end up. If we start with error, Our conclusions will be erroneous. We must build on a foundation of truth. Unfortunately, we have a perfect standard from which to take our first step. Square one. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Psalm 36, verse 9. With you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. You want your family and friends saved? Give them God's word, not human morality teachings, not your good experiences. Not your great opinions. Give them the word of God. I don't care what problem you're dealing with, with family or friends. Divorce, financial, immorality, whatever it is, the Bible speaks to it. Well you know, first Timothy four, verse four says, Well you know. Romans 1 talks about that sin of immorality. Here's what it says. Well, you know, here's what the Bible says about disobedience to parents. Ephesians 6, verse 1 and 2. You go this route, I'm telling you, you will have put within the Spirit's hand a sword that reaches to the dividing of soul and spirit. But if you go the route of man and stories and experience and opinions and quoting the experts, you will not win. You will lose because there's always somebody else to refute what you have to say. But they will not argue, cannot argue with God's word. It's miraculous the way this works. Lord Jesus, help us to see the truth of your word, the power of your word. We begin on square one. We begin with the truth. And by your grace, we end up with truthful conclusions. We discover more truth. And yes, as we go through life and as we wrestle with the problems of life, we get off track. But if we keep coming back to the Bible as our touchstone and we touch down again on the solid foundation of your word, it will have a corrective effect. It will pull us back off that error, back off those conclusions, and bring us back into right thinking and right actions. Help us to do that, Lord. We are concerned about our lost family and friends and neighbors. We have decided but we won't argue with them, but we're just going to share our testimony we're just going to share our experiences. Well, likely they'll nod their head in kind of a pleasant way. And they'll say something like, That's good for you. I'm so happy for you. But Lord, it won't make a dent in their own conscience because to them it's just your opinion. Help us, Lord, to say, Thus saith the Lord. Here's what the Scripture says. May we use the words of Scripture to confront sin and to point people to the Savior, who is Jesus. Help them to see that they they need a Savior. They don't think they need a Savior. And that's the delusion of the evil one. Help us, Lord, to be more bold. That's going to be more work on our part. We're going to have to know the book. We're going to have to know where to turn when, when um, problems arise, when questions arise. And it's not going to happen overnight. But, Lord, as we become more adept at doing this, we'll see the Spirit of God using the sword of the Word to bring about salvation. Help us build our worldview on the truth of the book of books in Christ's name. We ask.